and that pained me, that there are gifted children in Africa, but they don't have amenities. They will not see it that they actually part of people that go to space, that partake in programs that happened in NASA. And that is my vision for these children. This, that, you know, the sky is not even the limit. All you need to be given are the tools to get there. From Simbi Foundation, it's Impact in the 21st Century, a show about innovators, activists, entrepreneurs, authors, and the positive impact they create. I'm Aaron Friedland, and on the show today, I'm truly grateful to be speaking with author, founder, and social activist, Nadlika Mandela, about access to education, gender equality, and the burden of the Mandela name. And thank you to RBC for sponsoring this episode. So I will tell you, you know, for just to introduce you, Nadlika has a pretty brilliant resume, which I'm excited to share a little bit about. So you've worked as a social activist and a former ICU nurse. Um, you're head of the rural uplift organization, the Thembikil Mandela Foundation, which operates out right. of LA. And you're also the eldest grandchild of, of Nelson Mandela. Yeah, yeah, it's a mammoth task, you know, coming from a prolific family. It's, um, you know, because in the next generation, I need to set the tone for the ones that follow me. So it, it can be a daunting task, but I um, can pretty well say that, you know, it's a task that has had its challenges, but I'm able to carry it with lightness, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, yeah. Well, so you're the first member in your family, in the Mandela family, to actually reject the, the ANC, the African National Congress, which mm-hmm. I definitely want to get to because that is a huge thing okay. to do. Mm. Um, that same year in 2017, you also joined the Me Too campaign uh, to denounce sexual mm-hmm. violence and spoke openly um, about an incident that led you to speak out. And so I, I definitely want to get into that. And then okay. you just released a brilliant book which i'm currently reading which is i am nadlika more than my surname and you know reading i want to speak about that for a moment because first of all it's it's books that ultimately brought you and i together yes yes um but also i can't imagine being raised as you as you mentioned with this kind of last name that holds such power and, and what that must do to one. And so it's obviously impacted you because you've literally written a book where that is a part of the title. But I'd love to understand more of the rationale behind it and more of your thought, thought process behind that title. Well, you know, a lot of the times I would say up until maybe two, three years ago, I was always in Dileka, the grandchild of. I did not have my own identity. And that bothered me. I'm now in my mid-50s. I mean, up until I was 52, I was still referred to as if I, outside of this man, I don't exist. I don't have my own uh, uh, contribution to society. That was one of the things that prompted me to write the book, that I am more than Ndilega, the grandchild of. I am Ndilega first, then the grandchild of Nelson and Evelyn, you know. And, and for the longest time, that bothered me, that I, I was under the shadow of this man. And like all of us, it, it's, it's equally frustrating to, to, to not be able to escape 
this name. It's I was saying earlier on today because we're at the at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, which one of the of the um, Ford company was was donating a car to the Nelson Mandela Foundation, and I was saying that this name is a double-edged sword because on the one side is this wanting to escape from this shadow of this iconic man and always being compared to him. And the, the biggest thing people forget is that by the time I was an adult, by the time my grandfather was released, I was already over 25 years old. My identity was crystallized. So the sum total of who I am is not Nelson Mandela, the person that I'm always compared to, even with my being vocal, they are being said, no, you are being stubborn like your grandfather. No, the person that crystallized, this person that sits in front of you today is Evelyn, his first wife, because she's the person that brought me up from the age of two until I was a fully fledged adult. So the sum total of what you see, I have principle that grounded me mm. to be the person that I can be able to relate to anybody else. And there's also that the, on the other side, there is also the fact that be, by virtue of Nelson Mandela being in politics, that then translates to me being in politics. And also the fact that he was an ANC member, therefore that means that I must also be an ANC member, which came a lot when I pronounced that I will no longer vote the ANC because people will say, oh, I mean, how could she? Her grandfather was in prison for 27 years. Well, I'm not my grandfather. I have my own thought process, and to say that for me is diminishing my reasoning capacity to say that I don't have a voice of my own. I don't have my own reasoning capacity because I cannot take anything that's contrary to what she said. His times were different. I live in a, he lived in a different generation. I live in another generation, and I cannot, and I refuse. I fought against it. I refuse to be relegated to a status that you can't say this because your grandfather felt like this. That was him. And I always tell people, people know on social media, whenever they would say, but that's not what your grandfather would say. For instance, with the rape, or they were saying that with gender-based violence, we need to bring back the death penalty. <gasps> horror of all horrors. Your grandfather was, did not want this. I said, well, that was his time. The times now are different. They had a reason why they did not want the death penalty. However, those reasons do not exist in the times that I'm living in. Mm. So I can't take, and, and Granddad was the first one to acknowledge that times are different. So to be relegated to that status, you know, that I know that's one of the reasons I, I, I wrote the book. The other reason was that in, this, in, the, in the spectrum of my grandfather's life, there's two people that are missing great deal of a lot in it. It's my grandmother, the, pe the woman that brought me up, whom I write about, Evelyn, my, my, my paternal grandmother, and my father. Yes, my father died when I was four years old, but I, I had to learn about him through different people that I interfaced with. I learned about him through the letters that granddad wrote around the time of his death. So one of the reasons I want my father to be sort of resurrected from childhood because because people associate pictures with, with reality, the only picture that exists of my father and granddad is that of him as a little boy. He must have been about in his teens, in 13, 15 at the time. And people don't associate that he actually lived to be an adult. He got married, he had two children. So he's relegated to child status. So I had to resurrect him from child status to make him live and breathe 
in my book because I exist because he existed. I'm an extension of him and I will not have him be silenced because he lived. I felt very strong about it. I felt very strong about the fact that people always come, you know, attribute my character to my grandfather, a person that was in prison half of my life. Mm -hmm. And then they, they attribute, it, 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 it's patriarchy all over again, which annoys me that, you know, all the time, women that have always held the fort from time immemorial, even in, 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 in the, in the uh, urban migration times, they are relegated to being the women in the rural areas. And yet these are the women that were women and, 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 and contributed to society in their own right. Mm-hmm. But they are always under the shadow of their, of their, of their husbands. So for me, those three things were important. My, my father, my grandmother, and that I have a voice. And that voice will not be shut, will not be questioned, will not be muzzled. I have something to contribute to society. And, and oftentimes we think that we have to do these big audacious things to be able to change society. And it's in the little things, it's in, it's in the simple things that you can do. As a, as a, as a child at school, you can give back to your, to your fellow classmate that is battling in maths by donating your time and, and, and teaching them how to, to be savvy in. That's you giving back, you know, because it's not like you have to give it in monetary terms. You are giving it in kind by helping another fellow student to be able to make it and be able to, to pass an exam. Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at the work that you're doing, the the empowerment, the, the work that you're doing in STEM education, in literacy interventions, for female education, uh, I mean, employment for youth. When, when you look at all of that, you, you are Nadlika, right? You are your own person. And, and, and your impact has been absolutely profound, which was one of the reasons that I really wanted to speak to you about this. But, but I do understand how your name can carry that weight to which, which yeah. puts you in a place in which you, you, you're not sure if it's ever enough or if it's ever going to help you escape from that name. I've learned to carry it with, with a sort of lightness and also to be at peace that, yes, I will always be referenced to Nelson Mandela. It is what it is, but I'm quite happy that now I'm just no longer Ndileka, the grandchild. I'm Ndileka, the founder of the Tembegile Mandela. I'm Ndileka, the author of Mm -hmm. I Am Ndileka. I'm Ndileka, the social and gender activist. So that is coming quite strongly now. And it is because I have fought hard because I did not want my children to suffer the same fate. I certainly hope that they will also not be in my shadow Mm -hmm. as they grow older to say that Pumla, the daughter of Ndileka, as if they don't exist outside of me. But I guess it, 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 it comes with the turf when you belong to these iconic families. And like I say, I've learned to carry it with lightness mm-hmm. and to be at peace with it. Absolutely. I will, I will also say one of the reasons that we're together right now speaking, even before the book, is that mm. my great-grandfather was Nelson's eye doctor in prison. Yes. And this is actually one of his shirts. 
Wow, so wow, it's, that's it's amazing. Whole, this whole conversation right now does feel like it's yeah. come quite full circle. It's even got a little rip over here, which I refuse to oh fix. Oh my goodness, I can see, I can, I can see it, yeah. Because yeah. It's, uh, it's his. Sentimental value, yeah, it yeah, is yeah. sentimental value. Yeah, so what we were just talking about was essentially you feeling that you were associated with Nelson Mandela and, and, and Nelson Mandela alone. And what I'm wondering about is, in 2017, when you stood up and when you said, I am not voting for the ANC, mm. and when you stood up and you essentially joined the Me Too movement, how much of that were you able to do because you had, been, because you had now been a founder, a social activist, an entrepreneur, mm. and because you really were uh, very much your own person? I'm wondering if you if you feel that you would have had the same ability to speak your mind and to stand up if you had only been associated as Nadlika, grandchild of Nelson. Well, I, no doubt, Aaron. The 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 name comes with um, with certain liberties, mm -hmm. with uh, certain privileges, and one of those privileges is to say whatever I want. And the thing is. Up until that time that I said I will no longer vote the ANC, I never thought that my voice carried weight, really. I was just being frustrated with what was happening. And how it even came about to be in the public domain was that I, it was this one morning when I, a whole lot of things were going wrong. There was the life acid many, there was the, the, the corruption with the, with, the, with the pension payouts and, and, and grant money. Mm -hmm. And I just woke up frustrated because I was listening to the to the TV and they said something to the fact that actually even these people that get these grants, they take loans with the company that is affiliated to CBS. I just, I went ballistic that morning. So I took to Facebook and I, I had post, I posted a picture of myself and Granddad when Granddad was voting for the last ele local elections. And I said, well, you know, I will no longer vote sentimentally. But upon reading the first comment that came, I thought, you know what, back at this, I'm being, it's a matter of semantics. I need to be clear. I went back to the post and, 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 and edited it. I said, when I say that I will no, vote, I will no longer vote sentimental, I mean, I will no longer vote the ANC. I mean, it caused such a brouhaha. And I know that there's journalists that follow me. So one of the journalists picked up the phone because they have my number, said, Gilega. You know, are you willing to talk to us about this? It's, of course, it's not something that I'm hiding. I was just sharing with people that follow me, you know, and I was sharing my frustrations. That's how it came to be in the public domain. But I have got to admit that, you know, being the child of Nelson Mandela gives me that liberty. It gives me the latitude. It gives me the privilege of saying what I want to say. It gives me the privilege of even if I have to visit a country as a civilian, I get to be entertained by the head of state of that country by virtue of being the grandchild of this person. So it does come with, the, with certain liberties, which I appreciate. Uh, but when I said that about the thing, it was such a big thing that, you know, your grandfather would be turning. There were people that say that your grandfather would be turning in this grave. I said, well, for people that know one spectacle of his life, that is his political life, you have so much cheek to tell me that you knew my grandfather because I know him in the whole spectrum of his life. I know him as a father, a grandfather, 
uh, uh, uncle, great-grandfather, and a politician. So you can't claim to know what Nelson Mandela would think because I know him in the full spectrum of his life. I know this man from his strongest to his weakest. So you can't come and tell me as a stranger because you knew him politically to claim that you knew him. Mm-hmm. Nobody can do that besides the family. And none of my family members actually were up in arms except for Mandela because they knew where I was coming from. And, and um, even when people were saying, no, I said, well, this is the same Nelson Mandela that said, if the ANC does what the apartheid government has done, you must do the same thing that you did to the apartheid government. So whenever anybody would come up with me that, with that kind of nonsense, I would say, well, you mean the same Nelson Mandela that said that quotation? I would think that, you know, you would please rethink what you're saying right now, because that's the same Nelson Mandela that said that. Right. You know, it just, <laughs> it just struck me as it, it, it just struck me that all every family around the world will, will give quotes of their grandparents, you know, like, Oh, remember when granddad used to say this granddad used to say X granddad used to say Y you have like a, You've got big books of what granddad used to say, hey? Like those quotes are, <laughs> education is the most powerful weapon yeah. that you can use to change the world. Like mm. your granddad's quotes mm. are really like granddad's quotes. It's yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So just in terms of ANC and, and, and some of your work, what was, what was happening in, in SA with, um, with women, with, with female education, with gender-based violence? what were some of the things that were taking place that led you to feel that you could actually come in and make a difference? And, and I, I just want to preface this by saying you also um, started a, a degree in, in, in business and, and you've got a, a business degree. You've worked as an ICU nurse. You're very much a, a social entrepreneur, which is a title I like to identify with as well. And so what, what was the climate? What were you seeing around you? where you thought, you know what, I can actually come in here and I can make a difference? It was the abject poverty. You know, it started in 2012 when granddad was sick. And we had started ailing. He was in the Eastern Cape. And a family friend had called me to say, look, there's a school that my grandfather went to, Tlakbari. And I incidentally also went to the school. He said, this school is in a state of disrepair. And, you know, there comes a point in time in your life where you say, look, I need to search for what purpose I was brought to this earth. It was during that time that I was in that space of soul searching and a spiritual journey. And when this gentleman, a family friend came to me to say, look, you need to go to the school. And I saw how these children were squatting in a room because the the hostel was in a state of disrepair. It had bent down. There was no ablution facilities. There was no even proper bathroom for them to wash. It really broke my heart that children that are yearning for education have to be subjected to such living conditions. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? Granddad, when he started, when he had started the Nelson Mandela Foundation, he had two pillars that he felt were important in a child's life, especially in rural areas. That is health and education, because he felt these two pillars were a bedrock of any thriving society. And if we don't change that, the cycle of poverty will never be broken. So I took, that time Granddad was still alive, I said, look, those two pillars that used to be at the Nelson Mandela Foundation, which were discontinued, 
around 2008 when the, the Nelson Mandela Foundation rebranded to become the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory, doing dialogue, advocacy work, and, and um, the life and times of Nelson Mandela. They were discontinued. I then discussed, so let me just take them and, and use them under the banner of your son to make sure that to time infinite, my dad is alive because I that 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 was the start of the resurrection of Tembegile through the foundation. Mm -hmm. And he agreed with me, he gave it his blessing that I can continue doing that. And it was upon, you know, when I first made my visit to one of the schools where my daughter had um donated her time when she had a gap here, I said, Well, there's nothing like a gap here in this family. You're gonna go be, give back to society. So she went to this rural school to teach English with a friend of hers. When we started the foundation to look to think of how then we can gain traction and be known in the market, uh, we stumbled across a study which was done by Open Society Initiative of Southern Africa, where it showcased that up to three million girls in South Africa do not attend school when they menstruate because of a lack of sanitary way. It was such a it was mind blowing for me because I never thought in the 21st century there could be a child that cannot go to school because they don't have sanitary way. Because my privileged self, when I go and buy for my daughter and myself, I only look at the brand that I'm, I'm wanting to buy. It never, enters, it, it never entered my head that there could be a child that's not having sanitary way because of lack of resources. And then we started a flagship program called Pride of the Rural Girl to galvanize funds, to buy sanitary way to these children on a five-year cycle and not just give them for one month, but for the whole year. When we went for the first sanitary word drop, I will never forget it. I saw children, girl learners, in tears over a pack of sanitary way. It, it was mind blowing that there are certain things that when you grow up in a privileged society, you never even think about because it's, it's, it comes, it becomes second nature. So those are the things that galvanized me to say, you know, over and above this, let us look at them, at, you know, what STEM education of using, of leveraging of the fourth industrial revolution, because my biggest challenge and gripe is that there are children that are gifted in the rural areas, but because they don't have amenities, they slip through the cracks. And these are your, 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 your next neuroscientists, the next people that can find a cure for cancer. Now, who knows, they can find a cure for COVID. So there are these children that are so brainy, but because of a lack of amenities, they don't get to, to see it because all they lack is a person that can pick them up and say, I will give you the tools to go to leapfrog to the next stage. You know, it, it was never so clear to me as I went, I went to visit Texas in 2005 and, and I was given a tour of, of, uh, the, of NASA. The, the, the Lyndon uh, Johnson Space Center in, in Texas, in Houston. I met the first, uh, because I had met the first black African-American astronaut, she, they then took me to space where they were not allowed to go by civilians. And it was so amazing because I was taken to the command center where I could see in real time people floating from at, at the space center from one chamber to the next and they were doing a study of a to get to go to the next galactic space of twins. The one on Earth was a, was a control study to see what happens when a person has been on space in the year. 
and that person, I saw them in space before they flew down to Earth the following day. And what I saw, there was flags from every country that has been to, to NASA. There was nothing from Africa. And that pained me, that there are gifted children in Africa, but they don't have amenities. They will not see it that they actually part of people that go to space, that partake in programs that happened in NASA. And that is my vision for these children, this, that, you know, the sky is not even the limit. All you need to be given are the tools to get there. You're so right. You're so right. And I, I love how you talk about that. Thank you. You know, I'll tell you as well from, from personal experience working in, in Uganda and in refugee settlements, um, a lot of what you say is it really strikes a chord. For starters, we, we sponsor at Simbi Foundation um, many scholars. Mm. And, and we choose mm. these scholars, same idea. So they're on five-year academic scholarships. And there's two main like, mm. variable criteria which, which we use to choose them. So the first is high academic performance. And the second is particularly vulnerable and particularly low income. And what we have found is that using that, those variables, we're able to ensure that our dollars go the longest way, that they're able to get to identify those future astronauts in the refugee settlement and, and get them to school and keep them there. Um, but we've That's also done, Thank you. Thank you. We, we've also done quite a few uh, gender-based studies as they relate to sanitary pad usage in, in the refugee settlements and have seen the exact same mm -hmm. thing where, where learners, female students are missing 50 to 60 days of school because they don't have sanitary. Mm -hmm. If you compound those 50 to 60 days from grade age to 12, it's a year of schooling. A one girl loses. So by the time they write their final year, they've lost a whole year of schooling, which, which contributes to their poor, poor performance at the end of, of, the, of, of the high school year. So we need to be able to make sure because that also talks to gender-based violence mm. because they get abused because some of them, they have to trade sex to get to money to buy the sanitary way. If you think about it, menstruation is a, is a rite of passage from girlhood to womanhood. Now these girls are now relegated to be abused because they now have to traffic themselves to trade sex in terms to be able to buy the sanitary wear because in the rural areas, in poor communities, if you have to pit sanitary wear against a loaf of bread, a loaf of bread is going to win every time. And now these girls are relegated to, to sleeping with trackers to get sanitary wear to be able to attend school if they don't use unsanitary project, stuff like newspaper and God knows what else. I know in countries like, like Uganda, some of them use sand, which when it, it, it's absorbed, you know, through your bloodstream, it can cause a whole lot of, of it can cause a, a tetanus, tetanus and a whole lot of other ailments. Right. So let me ask you a question. If you think about the year 2030, hmm. what is your vision for education in, in South Africa? My utopian view for education is every child given the best education as they are given in private schools. Because in this country, for your child to get the best education, they have to go to a private school and not anybody can afford that. My dream is for every child to get as much as quality education 
of of a of a person that is affluent, there should be no no difference in income streams that you can get a better education because your parents can afford. My utopian education would be same education, same level, same amenities for every child in South Africa. I love that. And, and on top of that, I think the beautiful thing is that in the 21st century, if you think about the technology that we have available to us, there is no reason that we don't, it, it's a distribution problem. It's a distribution question. It's also a leadership, it's also a visionary thing because I cannot, be, I cannot understand in the 21st century why our current Minister of Education in this country cannot leverage of the first industrial revolution. They, they can be able to teach a school in the rural areas with the best math teachers in real time using connectivity. Why they don't leverage on that, I, it will always beat me because you can, we are connecting now. You, you are in, in, in Toronto. I'm in South Africa. We are talking, we are looking at each other. Why can they not use the same technology? Because they always gripe that there's not enough math teachers, there's not enough science teachers, there's not enough technology teachers. They can leverage off the fourth industrial revolution to do that anywhere in the world. It's true. So, Nadlika, you know, we're talking about the state of education and we're talking about where we'd like to see it in, in 2030. And mm -hmm. as you and I both know from our work in the field and just from reading any paper out there, that lack of proper education has massive, myriad um, societal negative consequences, right? Lack of education yeah. just causes these downstream effects that we don't think of. And in 2017, you joined the, the Me Too campaign to denounce gender-based violence and sexual violence and spoke openly about it. And I'd love to hear more from you about what led you to speak out and what you think has to happen as it relates to education to be changing the system so that these sort of events are not taking place as frequently as they currently are. You know, it was a conversation I had heard about the Me Too movement. And it wasn't until a day that I was having a, a conversation via WhatsApp with a male friend who has a PhD, and I thought that they would be enlightened. He sent me an article which was accusing one of the South African Football Association uh, figures, Daniel Yodan, of rape during the 2010. And then his subtext, the subtext on that said, what was this woman thinking, inviting this man into her room, her hotel room? What did she think was gonna happen? I said, what do you mean? Just please, can you decode that for me a little bit? He says, you know, I said, does that mean if I invite you to my room at a hotel, I'm, I'm, I'm soliciting sex? And I said, I, and then a question as I said, you do understand that a man can rape his wife. He says to me, well, it means that men have to we have consent forms to, so that a woman cannot cry rape. I tell you, Aaron, I had steam coming out of my every opening. I, I lost it completely. I completely lost it. I said, it is because of men like you. You do know that I was raped by my own partner in my own house. Then he says, oh, I'm sorry. I said, no, no, don't say you're sorry. Because two minutes ago, you were saying a man is entitled to rape to have sex with you, even if you say no, because by virtue of them being in a room. But I don't care even if you're naked for crying out loud. However aroused you are, 
if a woman says stop and you continue, that is the very definition of rape. And then I took to my Facebook and as per usual, I talked about my experience, which had happened five years prior to that. I said, this is why this narrative will not change because we have educated men that still believe that I am entitled to your body by virtue of me being your partner. I'm entitled to your body by virtue of the fact that we've been kissing and necking and now I'm aroused. If you say no, I must continue because you are responsible for arousing me. We have got to be able to debunk that, that narrative. And I believe that to be able to start curbing, or what they say, flattening the curve, as they would say in COVID terms, of the, the gender-based violence is when we start having different conversations. Because I believe that what we have done is we look at gender-based violence symptomatically. Because for me, gender-based violence is a symptom of something that has gone wrong with a man. And the fact that we say we even saying gender-based violence for me is a, is 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 a challenge because it's as if it's it's not done by somebody. It happens to women by an unknown force. No, it's not an unknown force. It's done by men. So let's call it what it is: men abusing women, not gender-based violence. Because yes, we know that it crosses sex, but the bulk of the time it is men assaulting women. It is men raping women. So let's call it what it is. It is not gender-based. It is men abusing women. So let's start calling it what it is. But what the important thing for me is to bring the perpetrator into the room because we need to unpack what is the general frustration of men. Because from where I stand, according to my viewpoint, it is that the, the girl child has been too emancipated. And it, it's not even starting with my generation. It starts with the generation of my grandmother. Like I mentioned earlier on that, women would be left fending for themselves because the man was in, 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 in Johannesburg in the mines and would only come home December time to procreate and then go back to, 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 the, to the urban areas. So women were used to, to being the head of households without the men being there. And they were used to, to running things at home. So girl ch children have always had strong role models when it came to women because they were led by these women. And boy, girl, boy, boy children never had any role models because where was the father? He was in the, in the mines. So the apartheid did, it was a systematic breakdown of family in that it created weaker men that could not be able to withstand rejection because the father was not there to tell him how to handle that. We can do as much as we can as a woman, but you, a man can relate better to a guy, to another guy to say, this is how you, you handle rejection. Because if you look at, at most uh, rape, and especially that happens between couples and within a marriage, it is an issue of rejection. Men cannot handle rejection. I see it all the time, even on Facebook, on on, on, on messenger, if you tell a guy that I don't want to go, they end up swearing at you. It's, it's, it's an issue of not being able to handle rejection. How do we handle that as a society? What is, what is the, at the bottom of this bubbling anger that men have? Why, is, why are men angry? Because I mean, in the 21st century we've had, especially in this country, we've had programs like take a girl learner to school, but there are no 
mirror pro programs for boys. Now, what we're doing, we're elevating girls to be at a, at, for lack of a, of, of a better analogy, to be on the sixth floor of a building while we're leaving the men on the ground floor. And then we expect these girls to marry whom exactly? To marry this man on the ground floor? They're not going to relate. Somehow something is going to get lost. So we are creating an unequal society. How do we then make sure that as we elevate, yes, women are still very much more disadvantaged, but we are getting more and more women that are emancipated. But then again, the flip side of that coin is that I believe, biblically speaking, and I have no other reference point for me for spiritual things other than the Bible, that God created men and women equally, but they play different roles by virtue of the fact that I can get pregnant and you can't. It, it points to our different roles. Our roles are more to nurture. Your role is more to provide. So how do we match these two and not compete with one another and be on, on, on equal part? Because for me, it's, it's these gender roles that have sort of been like skewed because you find a woman that has, has more earning power than the men, emasculating the men. And the men, because he's much more stronger than me physically, if I emasculate him, the way they react is to beat me up because they can't handle that emasculation. How do we then balance this too? That yes, I may be earning more, but that doesn't mean a man that is earning less is a less of a man. How do we level, how do we have these conversations that will deal with these issues? Because I have, a, I always tell my friends, I have a, a serious problem with the word feminist because I don't believe I'm a feminist. I actually, I'm not a feminist. I'm a gender activist because I fight for the rights of people irrespective of their gender because right now we have a lot of genders. How do we then balance our roles in society because we have different roles to play? Mm -hmm. We cannot run away from that fact. The fact that I can get pregnant and you can't points to the different roles that we have. Right. So in, when we talk about impact in the 21st century, what, what would you like to see done so that we can start to essentially build or, or, or retool or re-educate at this bottom level so that that boiling up that you're referring to can be slowed down more sustainably? What's, what type of things have to be happening as it relates to male and female education? For me, it's, it's first to have, men used to have, need to have their conversations on their own first. Women need to have their own conversations in, on their own first because I will tell you, as women, we also have our own issues. We, if we find a woman in the industry, we, we are more persecuting of other women as women. So we have got to be in a room, have a gloves of conversations of why we are our own worst enemies as women. Mm -hmm. Get to the root of that problem because I do not understand why I would know that Aaron is married and has a wife and I know the wife and I would still go out with you. Because we, as women, I, I believe that we then collude in that and then call men a lot of names. But we allow that situation. To happen even if it's your friend you don't call them out to say actually you can't do that because these people are married or they're in a relationship so how do we start having those conversations as women first and how and and parallel to that 
men need to have their own conversations of why they do certain things. And these two can then share the experience and share the experience that they have in terms of what ails women and men needs to listen to women and women vice versa. And until that such happens, I think I believe that we're going to continue running around in circles because we're not prepared to have honest conversations with one another. I couldn't agree with you more. When you reflect, when you introspect on, you know, the last 50 years of your life, and when you see to, to an outsider like me, when I, when I look at someone like you, I just see this powerhouse of a human who is so capable and has so much power behind them and is so ready to, to continue creating positive impact. And what does, what does the next two years look like? What, what, what are some of the biggest, most impactful interventions and areas that, that you're focusing your, your time and your attention? One of them is um, how to leverage off agriculture in terms of creating employment. I want to make agriculture sexy. I want to make agriculture sexy for young people. I want young people to see that through agriculture, especially in Africa, they have more earning power. And that is my mission. I, I, and I want to show them real experience because I intend buying land in the Eastern Cape and showing them that this can work. This agriculture is the new frontier, especially in Africa, because we have vast amounts of arable land. We have a young uh, population, a, a human capital that can be able to change the economics of, of, of Africa, not just South Africa, in terms of, 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 of labor. And, there's, and because young people, when they look at, at agriculture, they think, ah, oh, it's about crime and debt. And yet, there's a whole lot of a value chain in agriculture. There's seedling, there's agro-processing, agro there's juicing, there's a whole lot of, of, of value chain. And it's to showcase them that this is it. And I know that the entire world, food security is a problem. And they are looking towards Africa because we have arable land, vast amount of it, not just little, and the human capital to be able to cultivate it. That's All one. Right. And the other one is to, the second one would be to change laws in, in as far as gender-based violence perpetrators is concerned. You, in South Africa, you get, I mean, if I have to make a case in point of this child that uh, was killed brutally last year from UCT, the perpetrator got 15 years. That's a slap in the wrist for me, for, for a person that killed that child very brutally. We need to be able to change the laws in terms of how the law deals with uh, perpetrators of gender violence. Uh, I now belong to a group of Mama Grasa Marcel's daughter was, she lost an eye, she lost sight in one eye because she was beaten by her boyfriend and the judge has gone to in, in so much that the compensation that she was awarded by the first uh, court is he's, he's overturned it because in his judgment, he says that Josina is not beautiful, beautiful enough to warrant that kind of settlement and she's not a sportswoman. So it's sending a very wrong message to, 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 to survivors of, of gender-based violence that you have to be a football star or a sportswoman or 
a beauty queen to warrant such a, 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 a conversation because Josina is now permanently blind in one eye. So we are in this group, we are seeking to lobby different people because I, when I went to India recently, there was a woman from Nepal that where they've actually even criminalized a spousal rape. And when I asked her, how did they do it? She said they lobbied even men because this is what we do as these women groups. We don't involve men that have the same thinking as us because it's important for us to involve men because they understand how men think mm. and they would help us to, to package whatever it is that you do to be in a language that men will be able to, to digest it because inadvertently it's about men's egos. So we need to be able to, to manipulate, so to speak, these egos of men to get what you want because we need laws change in terms of gender-based violence. So those are my two pet projects in the next two years that I'm going to be really sinking my teeth into to make sure that it is my legacy. And it is something that I leave behind to time immemorial. Even my granddaughter would know that my grandmother was part of that. Well, I look forward to seeing these two grow over the next few years. And my last, and my last question for today, uh, everyone on the planet has a favorite Nelson Mandela quote. Mm -hmm. What's yours? Mine is, um, education is the most powerful tool you can use to change the world. And there is no better quote than that, because as I say in my book, education has different layers. Most people always think education as informal education. There's a type of informal education that's equally important in a child's life. There is cultural education. So when I'm saying education, I mean it in all its permutation, not just book or school, the one that you get in a school, in a classroom or in a tertiary institution. I mean a person that is broad-minded enough to have, that's what granddad was. She, he was a person that could dovetail from cultural to, she could, he could talk to head of state, and a street sweeper in the same manner because to him, people are human beings. But he, he, he had the, the educational nuances of being able to, to converse with a person, a lay person, and the, the, the super intelligent people. That's the type of education I'm talking about. So beautiful, thank you. <laughs> Nadlika, thank you so much for being a part of this. Oh, no, thank you. I, I, I had a good time. I, I had a good time. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Impact in the 21st Century, which was sponsored by RBC. If you enjoyed listening and want to help us grow this podcast, we'd love for you to tell a friend, family member, or colleague about it. Or you could like, leave a comment, and subscribe to our channel so you don't miss new episodes. Stay tuned for the next episode where I'll be speaking with author and academic Marianne Wolfe about how humans changed our own brains, the state of literacy in North America, and the power of reading. Thank you.